friends, you can earn CEUs for listening to this podcast. It's such an easy way to learn on the go. Check out speechtherapypd.com slash SUP and enter my promo code SUP to get $10 off a year's subscription. With weekly podcasts, you'd never have to worry about getting enough hours again. Can we say ACE Award? Like, for sure. (laughs) Plus, you can join me for the live CEUs and ask me and my guests questions directly. We broadcast the CEU every Monday evening, and I love engaging with my CEU participants. Made by medical speech and language pathologists for medical speech and language pathologists, the Speech Uncensored podcast is here to inspire you to travel down the path of evidence-based practice. With me in the digital studio today is Dr. Leah Hallou to discuss how the conversation we have with our patients can help or hinder therapeutic outcomes. I am Leanne Porter, your host, and now let's greet our fabulous guest today. All right. Hi. How's Hello. It going? Great. Thanks. How are you? I'm doing good. Um, welcome to the Speech Uncensored podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited to learn more from you this session as we discuss metatherapy, what it is, and probably also what it isn't to distinguish it from similar practices that people might get confused. Mm -hmm. Um, But before we get into that, um, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and some background? Yeah, so my name is Leah Hallou, and I um, am an assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh. I went into the field of speech pathology because I either wanted to be a doctor or a singer. And I got nodules when I was about 15. And my therapist at Wake Forest um, Medical Center at the, at the voice center there was named David Blelock. And I found myself sobbing in his office one day. And he said, oh, if you like medicine, you like voice, do what I do and be a voice pathologist. So that's what I did. Um, and I love voice. I also work with laryngeal breathing disorders. Um, I'm presently on a brief sabbatical from patient care because it's not part of my tenure track position at the University of Pittsburgh. And I do research that broadly focuses on mind voice pathways, which encompasses a human line of research that's voice stress psychophysiology and voice and identity and a basic science line of research that is experimental neuroanatomy in monkeys. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I have like a hundred questions now. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> I would think that's kind of the normal stasis for being a researcher. Like people become researchers or are researchers because they have questions and they want answers. I have so many questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, are we ready to dive into the topic? Sure. Okay. Guide me. Well, so I should say that this metatherapy paper um, was only ever written because after about 10 years of just talking about this with people and sitting around at conferences and grabbing drinks with colleagues and saying like, hey, like, how do you practice? How do you, why is it that you can make people better in three sessions? And for me, it takes eight, right? And then as I became had as my expertise grew in voice disorders, I was on the other side of that. How is it that I can make a patient better in one to three sessions, but 
you know, Susie, speech pathologist, can't. Maybe, you know, we always get patients uh, to the UPMC Voice Center, the University of Pittsburgh Voice Center, who have been working with some speech pathologist for, you know, 24 sessions or something like that. What are, what is the difference? And, um, and what it came down to from what I could tell and just talking with colleagues and asking experts in across the nation was it's, it's the conversation that I have. And of course, we're not taught that in our master's programs in voice disorders. We don't really hear a conversation. And so I want to give two two caveats to this whole article. One is that I don't like the term metatherapy, but I've asked so many people and I can't come up with a better term. Maybe we'll do that today. <laughs> and two, the article that was written, I just took the opportunity. I had an invitation to um, submit something for a special edition of Perspectives. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to put this in here. It's the worst thing I've ever written. And <laughs> yeah. Why did you say that? Well, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of time to collect my thoughts. And it, it is literally my first attempt at articulating this concept. I mean, articulating the concept over drinks at a conference is very different than articulating it in writing for, for a wide audience. And, um, and, you know, I just took the risk and did it. And I love the article. It's a little bit of like an ugly stepchild to me because it's something, well, it's Maybe I shouldn't say ugly stepchild because the implication there is that, you know, stepchildren are something that you don't like. I don't know. But uh, I, how do I, how do I say it? I don't know. The topic is really precious to me because what happened is I went into this field to be a voice pathologist. That's me giving that background it kind of sets me up to, to explain why metatherapy is so important to me. Um, and I went through voice therapy as a teenager and I didn't understand resonant voice and I didn't even know I didn't understand it. Then I went through my undergrad. I did some, you know, special research projects in voice. Then I went to my master's program. I went because I wanted to be a voice pathologist and I paid the best attention that I could. I got an extra externship in voice. I still didn't know how to do resonant voice. Then I went to work in a private practice in California for my CF. I was seeing voice patients. I still didn't understand resonant voice. And as part of that job, I was an early interventionist, uh, early intervention um, speech pathologist. So I was working with kids zero to three, and I kept losing my voice by the end of the week. And one day, it's a Thursday at like 4.45 p.m., almost the end of my day, I'm on my hands and knees barking like a dog for the eighth hour in a row. <laughs> and I, my throat hurts and I'm so frustrated. Like, dang it. Why? I love voice. Why can't I figure out my own voice? And I sat there on the floor after that patient left and I just played with my voice and played with the lip trills that I knew were supposed to be useful for something and figured it out. And I was like, oh, Oh, okay, I get it now. So years after I was first introduced to resonant voice as a patient, then as a therapist, well, patient, then student, then therapist, years later, I finally get it for myself. And this is not uncommon from what I can gather. Um, and so that really started getting me thinking about why is voice therapy so challenging for people? 
And I think it's, it lies in part because it's so abstract. Voice is so abstract and mysterious, not tangible. You can't see it or touch it or put, you know, put down a piece of paper the way we can other kinds of therapy. And it's actually really complicated too. It's really intertwined with your sense of self and your identity and um, your identity in terms of large cultural points and, and then finer points of your identity. Um, and so speech pathologists have a really challenging job with voice, which is that they have to take a really complex thing and render it accessible to a lay person who doesn't need to learn what the intrinsic laryngeal muscles are. They don't need to know vocal fold physiology in great detail. Um, and so we give them these threads to pull, lip trills and hums and things like that. And in doing that, if we don't have an appropriate conversation that builds a conceptual framework for people, then we've made this thing that's really complicated and really mysterious and um, profound we've we've made it like child's play we've made it kind of dumb people feel dumb when they do the tasks and then they feel dumb when these easy childlike tasks don't transfer to a good voice for them they feel i can't do it right i guess i just don't understand and we lose our patients and we lose our patients in this in this kind of uh downsampling if you will of what voice is to what we try to make it for our patients. And if we don't give them lip trills and hums that can be pinned to an appropriate conceptual framework, then they just won't get it. They'll walk away thinking that there's something in inherently healing or prophylactic about lip trills. They'll think that voice is physical therapy for the voice, which it's not. They'll think that more lip trills make your voice stronger, which in turn heal your muscle tension dysphonia, which is not true. And all of these things could be resolved and are resolved through just an appropriate clinical dialogue that builds that conceptual framework, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yes. Now, and then as I internalize that, I'm like, okay, how do I do that? How do I get that internal dialogue that I have in my head out to the patient in a way that they understand it? Because um, I know personally, like I do, I struggle with making that translation from this complex thing that I'm still grappling with and still trying to understand and work it all out in my head and interpreting that for my patients so that they understand what we're doing and why we're doing it and what the result results are that I'm hoping they're able to achieve. So yes, please keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that I think is so important in making this stuff more accessible for people is we know that there's a shortage of um, voice specialized clinical fellowships for speech pathologists who want to do voice. And that's where, that's the best place to get it because you've got an expert speech pathologist at the helm of a voice specialized center. And you as their trainee now have access to all of their oral history about here's what I do, here's how I do it. You get to watch them. Watching a master clinician model is excellent. And, um, and so we pick it up from in those training opportunities. And this is why and how people end up being a mini me too, right? Is if you have some expert speech pathologist who's like, this is how you do voice therapy, um, you become like them if, if they're your training model. 
And while that's, while that could be a great thing, um, it could also for a couple of years until you break out of that mold could also kind of stunt your, your access to your own personal skill set. So, um, you know, voice therapy, I, I haven't done enough in, in years since I've had this kind of self-awareness about myself as a therapist. I haven't worked with other types of patients enough to know how similar this is with, with other patient groups. But in terms of voice patients, you know, certain voice patients are better with me than with one of my colleagues. Um, because, you know, I, I've been described as a brick covered in velvet. So it's easier for me to give people <laughs> <laughs> like a tough message or to work with someone who's a little bit more challenging. Whereas like, you know, teenage young ladies, for instance, not my, not my best work. I don't know what to do <laughs> with teenage girls. Um, and, and I want to kind of send them to other therapists because they have a totally different style. We both make progress. We both me and my colleague that I, that I have in mind for this particular example, our patients get better. Um, but the way that we connect with them is entirely different. And so you don't want a bunch of mini-me's running around. You want people to step into their own existence as a therapist and know their strengths and, and know their weaknesses and then play accordingly. So um, in the absence of getting a voice specialized CF, because there's just a, a handful of them available, how do we make this leap? And I, I would argue that it's whomever is teaching the voice therapy class, the, the voice disorders class and the master's program um, needs to bring this material on as, um, yeah, basically an oral history that gets passed down from generation to generation. So you get some expert voice therapist or the person teaching who says, well, here's how I talk about resonant voice. So for instance, I say, you know, this isn't physical therapy for your voice right? I mean, that has to be said, but we're not told that it has to be said. So it goes unsaid by new therapists. Um, this isn't therapy for your physical therapy for your voice. We're not doing lip trills to make your voice stronger. We're not doing lip trills because if you do a lot of them, they will heal your nodules. You're doing lip trills because when the air from your lungs goes through the, the vocal tract and vibrates your lips. Your lips are like four times the size of your vocal folds. So you need a lot more air to get them to set into motion. So you kind of feed two birds with one scone with lip trills. You bring the sound forward in your face. See how you feel all those vibrations? And you've ramped up your airflow so much to get you out of this, what I call low flonia. I have to give credit to Miriam Vermersbergen for the term low flonia. Um, but it, it, it accomplishes these two key goals. You need air to move through the system and you need to bring that resonance forward. I don't care if you're resonating in your big toe, just keep it out of your throat, right? You don't need all that effort to be here. That's what you're here complaining to me about. I feel it in my throat. So how can we move it out of there, right? So here I've built a conceptual framework just in that brief explanation of what the lip trill's doing. It's just giving someone a thread to pull. Here is a moment in time where your voice is happening with good airflow and it's not stuck in your throat. Now you have that thread. Let's pull it into speech. That's all that, that it does for you. They don't need to know the underlying uh, research from Dr. Vertolini Abbott about how it um, changes 
vocal fold mechanics. I mean, they can know. It's not going to be harmful necessarily for them to know that. Um, but they don't need to, to get a better voice. And so it's just in the way that I talk about the tasks. But if you go around, you ask the top voice therapists, um, what do you say about things? It's stuff like this. And they have these spiels that, that make the thing really accessible. And that's what we're not passing down to new students. And so new students go in and say, do 20 lip trills and let me hear it. Do you feel anything? No? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> yeah. And then they're lost. And then the speech pathologist feels stupid too, because lip trills are simple, right? Mm -hmm. And they're supposed to be really like one of our biggest tools. So why isn't it working? What am I doing wrong? And what don't I understand? And I think we lose people out of voice. Um, and voice is unfortunately an easy thing to ignore on caseloads. So a lot of patients have voice disorders. The number of my master's students who say in my voice disorders course, oh, I've seen so many kids on my caseload this semester who have voice problems, but my supervisor never mentioned it or said, yeah, but I don't do voice. So we're just not working on it because they can still technically be heard. Like, I have a problem with that. So, yeah, I low-key do as well. Um, well, that's just more of a broader problem I have with our field. A problem that I love about our field is that it is our scope of practice is so wide and varied and mm -hmm. nuanced. And um, I feel like to do a really good job in an area such as voice, you need to dedicate some time to it and spend time, like you've mentioned, mm -hmm. um, with an expert and, and learn how they do it and, and learn those conversations that they have, how they explain things. And it's not just learning techniques, you know, like anyone, you don't yeah. have to have a master's program or a degree to learn how to do a technique and to read instructions to a patient on how to do that technique. Yeah. Um, so I find that when we don't know something very well, we get intimidated by it. And then we're like, leave that for the expert, leave that for the person who specializes in that area. Yeah, so absolutely. That was push for, for having this kind of a conversation on is, is demystifying it and being like, this is accessible. This is approachable. Here are some ideas on how you can, <laughs> you can do it too. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, the, the overlap between the stuff that I'm talking about and counseling, you know, I hear a lot of people complain that they don't get enough counseling either um, to prepare them for things. Um, and people who are afraid of counseling will also avoid these conversations about metatherapy because metatherapy also gets into, um, you know, let's take it into the context of transgender voice. It's common to work with a trans person who, um, who will come to you and say, I, I want to work on my voice to be true to my sense of self, Right. In the course of doing that, though, what often happens is that they have to abandon parts of communication. They don't have to, but they, they come to a point where they could choose to abandon parts of their communication. And in doing that, they really can be cut adrift and lose their sense of self. And, you know, it's like, wait, I came here to be kind of true to myself and to actualize myself. And yet now I'm feeling like I'm losing parts of myself through this process. And this is a time for counseling when that happens. 
But before that, before you get to that crisis, and for some people it's really a crisis, and for some people it can trigger some really deep, heavy, painful stuff. Um, so before you get to it, I I argue that metatherapy is just talking about it. Counseling is dealing with it when you get to that moment, but if you just talk about it to normalize the fact that, and to just bring people's attention to the fact that communication, the way we communicate is deeply rooted in who we are and vice versa. And um, it becomes very structural to our sense of self, our communication styles. And anytime you start to break down that structure, you risk losing access to your sense of self or your, your stability of your sense of self. And that can be really jarring for people. And so I talk about it up front. And then what's nice is that instead of this only coming up when someone's in this crisis mode and this is happening to them, they now have, again, a framework for understanding what might be involved. It might not be. But now when it starts to come onto their horizon, they recognize it for themselves and they come to me and they say, hey, I'm realizing that I'm struggling with um, the fact that this new feminine voice makes me sound, I don't know, kind of kind of like maternal, but like in an old like grandmotherly type of way. And I don't feel old and I don't want to feel like a granny. Um, and yet, I guess if I think about it, um, I've never had the opportunity to feel maternal because I've had to live as a man for so many years. So I'm going to try to embrace this this, this voice. Um, and I'm going to leave some fraction of space in my sense of self for maternal to be part of it. They can, they can now have those words for themselves instead of me helping to shape that conversation in the moment. Um, and so that's where counseling and metatherapy overlap. And, um, and I think it does get a little sticky, like what's the difference, but I view it as the conversations we have just about what we're doing here in therapy, what it means and what it's about, that's, that's building a conceptual framework, giving people a heads up that um, voice change can feel really pubertal. It can make you feel adolescent in a way that you haven't felt in a long time, and that could be disruptive, and that might lock you into the behaviors that don't work for you but feel like a comfort zone, right? Um, when people have this information, they start to take ownership of their voice change. But when they don't have that information, they're standing there with open hands, waiting for you to give them whatever magic you're going to give them, waiting for you to change them somehow. And that transference of ownership happens late or it never happens. And that's why therapy takes so long with novice clinicians. Yeah, I'm a little slow to pick up on that in my own practice, but I'm on board with that now. And I've like... As I've started this podcast and been and learning and listening from SLP colleagues and people who've been doing this a lot longer than me, that's like that's it. It's um, and I've all but I've always wanted that for patients too. I've just not been able to deliver it efficiently in the past, and I'm I'm learning how to do that now. Yeah, um, and I think yeah, it's I, fine. Yeah, I'm the guide. Yeah. I show you, but in the end, this is up to you. Yeah. You know, if you want to make these changes or progress in this area that you've identified, like I show you how, you take ownership of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that this probably does happen in all aspects of clinical 
um, experience where you've got this ramping up stage of like, I'm not a very effective clinician, then I get better. Um, but with these specialty areas where you can't get good training, you can't afford to just wait for experience. Um, you know, if it's easy, I don't know, our tick, if there's some element of this that happens in our tick therapy and kids and you're in a school placement, you're going to scale that learning curve very quickly. And you're probably not going to drop out of articulation therapy and, and just distance yourself from that because you feel inadequate. But for voice, I think we're losing people who could be great voice clinicians because, um, because they sense that they're not being effective and it, it stinks to feel so adrift and lost when, you know, you have a master's, you've finished your clinical fellowship. Why can't I figure this out? That insecurity about what you know and that insecurity about your abilities, I think, pushes people away from voice because voice isn't trained and talked about this way and because we don't have good postgraduate training experiences for the masses of speech pathologists who might be interested. Mm -hmm. So, Okay. Now, um, we've been talking, and of course, this is how you've developed this idea um, of how conversations can shape and change the therapeutic process. Um, Have any of your colleagues who work outside of voice had any input on like, oh yes, this totally applies to this area too, or I use that no matter who I'm working with. This is a principle I can apply in any setting. Um, no, actually, because, and I'm embarrassed to admit this, um, <laughs> my colleagues in speech pathology who don't do voice, we don't tend to talk about work. <laughs> we just talk <laughs> about family and books and music or whatever. But my colleagues in voice, we talk about this a lot. And so, for instance, um, Edie Hapner and Jackie Gartner-Schmidt, they call what I call meta-therapy, they call the how, right? (laughs) And it's the how of voice therapy. And they've been doing a couple of talks on this um, recently, and I you know, I'm kind of petitioning them. I don't care if we call it the how or meta-therapy, but we've got to call it the same thing because it's in the it's in this ambiguity of terminology that the whole thing gets lost to begin with. We don't even have a word for it. We have three modes of therapy and voice. We have direct therapy, indirect therapy, and counseling. And there's no room for, for um, the clinical dialogue. And there's no clinical dialogue baked into flow phonation. There's no trained clinical dialogue baked into many of the techniques that we know. Um, and even if, there is, so for instance, the dialogue that's available through uh, Kitty Vertolini Abbott's resident voice training, it's not talking, it's not encompassing, you know, identity and things like that, which are part of our wheelhouse. They're in our wheelhouse. We do need to be able to talk to our patients about how emotion plays out in the voice and how stress plays out in the voice and how personality manifests in the ways that we communicate. And um, so, Yeah. So I've gone a bit far afield from your question. I'm embarrassed to admit, I'm not talking with other people about this, but I will, I will make it a goal for 2019 (laughs) before it's up to talk with some of my colleagues about that. Well, I just feel like it's really applicable, like to a lot, a lot of other ways, because when, when you were kind of describing just now about how it's not baked into the conversation about how we teach it or how we learn it or how we communicate about it, I see that in a lot of other areas. 
And some, some places it might not be applicable, but I think knowing how to, I, I see this as a way to empower your patients. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's applicable across our field. I agree. No matter if you're doing voice therapy or a very specialized form of voice therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of where I was like saying, like, let's, let's make this broad. Let's yeah. look a blanket term for just all of speech therapy. When we're interacting with our patients, how are we empowering them to, you know, become the clinician? Because our therapy will come to an end mm-hmm. and they may still have portions of this problem or it might circle back and they'll, they'll need to know those tools on how to improve or yeah. address whatever their problem is that they're coming to us for. Yeah. And I don't hear enough conversations about this in our field. Um, you know, I, I, I think of it as a transference of ownership for the problem that we're treating. There's a power dynamic <clears throat> that I'm very, very sensitive to, um, especially in particular with uh, working with people who are trans or non-binary. There is a power dynamic that says, I'm in charge. I'll tell you, you sit here, learn from me. I think that's deeply problematic. Um, and the clinician has to, the onus is on the clinician to change that dynamic. That is another thing that we don't receive training on how to do. That's not something that I ever heard about in my training. It's not something I hear in continuing education. And maybe there's some transference of ownership CEU workshop that I'm just unaware of, but I don't think that it's talked about a lot. And, um, and that is central to what makes me an effective voice therapist. I am going to make you your own clinician. That's part of the metatherapy. That's part of people understanding what we're doing here. Not, oh, I'm here because this lady is going to tell me what to do. I'm here to become my own clinician. Whoa, that's not what I expected here. They want it to be this passive thing. Again, they think it's physical therapy for the voice. And they think that the only way they're going to have to take ownership of it is I have to do some homework, right? Well, first of all, as a clinician, I don't give homework um, because people treat it like homework, which is they, if, if they do it, it's at the end of the day. Um, I say every immediately before the next session. Exactly right, exactly. And I say every oper- every time you open your mouth to talk is an opportunity to practice. If you do that all day every day, you're going to get better really fast. If you don't do it, you're not going to get better really fast. You might not get better. It's on you. You know, people need to know that. <laughs> there was that brick wrapped in velvet coming out. I love it. <laughs> Honestly. Yep. Yeah. But, but people do need to hear that. And, and that transference of ownership, clinicians, young clinicians don't know how to do that. And they need to be, they need some models for what that could sound like, sound like, not sound like. Um, <laughs> so, um, Again, I, I would call that metatherapy too. And it's just the, the words we say, just our spiels, the dialogue, the discourse that, that builds whatever it is the patients think that we're doing here. And we could end up having them think that we're doing physical therapy for the voice and just do all these homework exercises and let's see how your voice gets better. That's, I think, a pretty classic model. Um, or they could think that, um, as soon as possible, they need to become their own clinician. 
They need to be able to troubleshoot their own voice starting after the first session. You know, they need to have an understanding of what are the key things here. Because another thing that happens in voice therapy is you're trying so much. In one session, I'm trying uh, to get people to feel vibrations on fricatives, on an mm, on an NG. I'm doing lip trills. I might have them gargle. I might have them do flow phonation, straw phonation. I might have them blow bubbles into a glass of water. And for patients who are trying to do things right and who are using this as an opportunity to learn and to they're learning to what they need to do to get a better voice because they're motivated for that, they don't know that everything that I just did, all 20 things I just did, come down to three things I'm trying to get them to do, which is ramp up their airflow, bring the resonance out of their throat, and minimize tension in their system. That's it. Three things. Everything maps onto these three things. So if I don't tell them and I draw my patients a little love letter every single session where I've got forward resonance in this cloud, and then I've got a big arrow and inside of it, I write the word airflow. And then I've got a down facing arrow and inside of it, I write the word tension so that everything that we're doing maps on in some way to this kind of healthy foundation for voice use. You want a good voice? Get out of your own way. Stop driving with the brakes on. That's another Miriam Van Mersbergen uh, uh, saying. Our patients with muscle tension, dysphonia, and nodules often drive with the brakes on vocally, right? So get out of your own way. Minimize tension. Ramp up your airflow. And bring that resonance into a place where it's going to work for you, not against you. That's it. And in the absence that, that is simple and straightforward yeah. and like, yep. oh, okay, I got it. Yeah. And in the absence of me making that um, explicit, they're trying to track all these things I'm doing and trying to learn to do each one right. And you don't need to do that. Like, you know, I give the example of, oh, another thing that I do in voice therapy, um, which I got from uh, my colleagues and uh, peers at the UPMC Voice Center, um, is that I name the voice. So when they come in, we call their voice the default voice. This is the voice you walked in here with. This is the one you use all the time, but it's not working for you, right? Right. And I say, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to, I got a bunch of tricks up my sleeve. I'm going to throw them your way. Just roll with it. Don't worry about learning any of them. I'll tell you if I want more or less or different. All you have to do is go with it, okay? And so in doing this, I'll shape the voice. And I've maybe in a five-minute period, I've said, all right, sit up straight. Now roll those shoulders out. You're holding really tightly. Okay, give me that lip trill again. Ooh, I like that lip trill. Carry that into an mm. Oh, that mm sounds great. Now, when you like how the mm sounds and feels, release onto a vowel. Hmm, ah, nice, sounds good. Ma, wait a second, you lost it at the end there. Add a P to the end. Ma, because that co-articulation for the plosive, right? They don't need to understand why they're doing all this. Okay, mop sounds good. Now think P at the end, but don't say it. Ma, good, that sounds good. Here we go. Do you feel like this is easy? Yeah, good. Let's carry it into speech. Maui, maybe, many, my. Sound good, feel good? Yeah. Do you like how this is? Does it feel easy? Good. Now let's do a sentence. My name is Leah. Within five minutes, I've taken them to speech. 
I haven't told them anything about why I'm doing what I'm doing. But as soon as they get a voice that they like and they're nodding their head saying, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. I say, all right, give that voice a name. What's that voice called? And they'll say, that's my easy voice. Cool. You own your easy voice. Wrap a bow around it, put it in your pocket and carry it home with you. It's only rocket science if we're doing it on a rocket. You own the easy voice now. And now they have one word to describe this place that I took them to vocally. And all they have to do is that one word. It's like saying, can you talk like a Southern lady? Or can you talk like an old Italian guy? Sure, you can. You can talk like a Southern lady. And to talk like a Southern lady, you don't have this laundry list in your head of, I have to elongate my vowels. I have to lighten my articulatory contact. I have to slow down my speech by X percent. I have to do... But, but what you've done to accomplish a Southern lady mode of speech is a laundry list of things. Why on earth do we give our patients a laundry list of things? It makes no sense. They don't need to know it any more than I need to know how I can sound like a Southerner. And so we do them a disservice by over-explaining. And this is where new clinicians feel comfortable. They over-explain because first of all, that's how they were often trained is to explain to me why you're doing what you're doing, right? Um, and it's a comfort zone to just give facts and information when you can't figure out how to make the lip trill work. So um, it's in this naming of things and in this, this um, taking away, stripping away all the explanations we give and just instead taking the time to put a better voice in the hands of our patients and tell them to take it home, that we're effective. And that's the clinical dialogue that new clinicians wouldn't have access to unless someone told them. And it's not in our textbooks. I've looked. Yeah, right. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, Leah, that was fantastic. You, you are a treasure. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. It's fun. All right. Uh, well, to wrap up our time, unless you have anything more. No. You're good? Okay. Well, wait, um, I have one more thing that I would like to I do have one more thing that I would like to say, and that's that this concept just came out of my head, and I don't trust anything that comes out of my head and hasn't been vetted. So I would love input and feedback from other people who do work outside of the realm of voice. How does this apply? What's a better term that's maybe more accessible, or is this a good term? If there's value in this, I'm happy to keep it moving forward and see how it evolves, but I need input. All right. And how can they deliver that input to you? Oh, they could email me at lbh7 at pit.edu. Oh, good. Nice and short. Okay. One more time in case people are like, I need a pencil. <laughs> yeah. That's lb as in Bernadette, h7 at pit.edu. Excellent. All right. Okay, so um, can you tell me about a clinician or a researcher who has impacted your practice? Well, there are a ton. Um, but the person who comes to mind right now is uh, Joan Regnall. Joan was um, my mentor in voice at the George Washington University where I got my master's. And um, she was just a gem of a lady, hilarious. She was... Um, she, she was, um, yeah, you know, I realized that that's a whole other episode. Um, <laughs> I'll just keep it short. Joan Regnall. 
may she rest in peace. Excellent. Okay. Um, and how do you feed your brain with SLP goodness? How do you stay current um, in your practice and your research? Oh, I mean, well, since you're a researcher, like, I guess you're the one keeping the rest of us current on practices and whatnot. Oh, gosh, I should hope so. But of course, I have to stay current. Um, I, I rely pretty heavily on conferences. Um, I go with regularity to conferences like the Fall Voice Conference, uh, Voice Foundation Symposium. I go to uh, the Society for Neuroscience Conference, which if you think ASHA is big, that's like 15,000 people. Society for Neuroscience has about 30,000 um, neuroscientists from around the world um, and um, other other conferences, but also just reading a lot of literature and talking with other clinicians whose work I respect. Mm-hmm. Um, and do those um, clinicians whose research that you read do you meet them in person? Do you just oh, yeah. like, mm-hmm. yeah, and is that at the conferences? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there aren't, it's a, it's a small field, right? So it's easy to know all of your colleagues fairly well. And, um, I do, there are certainly many that I'd like to get to know better, but it's, um, it's a very familial, uh, academic and clinical scene voice. And so, mm-hmm. Yeah, at conferences, you just connect with people. And anytime in between conferences, I'll just give people a call or email if I'm stumped or need, need their input or something. Okay. Um, and then does that also kind of lead into collaborating with research or projects or other? Yeah, of- yeah. Except that I don't have any more time. So I have to say no to all collaborations right now because I'm so spread thin on, on time. It's, you know, it's difficult enough being a scientist in 2019 when you have one line of research and I have two distinct lines of research, um, one in animals and one in humans. And, um, I've, I've, I'm maxed out. So, <laughs> so maybe in five years I'll get into some collaborations cause that's really my favorite. I love collaborating with, with other people. All right. And um, what's some of the best advice you've ever received or um, advice you'd like to impart to our listeners? Hmm. Well, this isn't advice that I received. It's advice I wish I'd received. And it's a lesson that I learned. Um, And it's that insecurity breeds very dangerous interactions professionally. When you're insecure about what you know or insecure about yourself in some way, um, you need to root that out and inspect it and love it and deal with it because some of the worst patient care and some of the worst kind of interpersonal interactions I've seen professionally stem from, I think, a place of insecurity that someone's not willing to acknowledge and deal with. And because this much of what we talked about today revolves around the discomfort of not knowing how to do something, um, you know, that ties in with this issue of insecurity. And I think that, you know, it's easy for new clinicians to be insecure about what they know around a doctor, for instance. Don't be. Own your field. Own what you know. And if you have insecurity about it, deal with it. That's my, that's my advice and a, a very hard-earned lesson on my part. 
I think, yeah, I think that's really wise. That's definitely something I have to keep going back to, too. I think because I can, as you mentioned, like working with doctors one-on-one, like it can be intimidating. And so it's like, I have to recognize that they have a very specialized set of knowledge and I have a very specialized Mm -hmm. set of knowledge and they don't necessarily overlap. And one of their special skills is to sound exactly like they know what they're talking about when often they don't. (laughs) Not often, but even when they don't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, and it's been surprising kind of as I do talk with doctors and I ask them questions or things like that. Um, you'll find some doctors that will be like, you know what? I don't know the answer to that question. And I totally would anticipate that they did. And that just reaffirms to me that they have a very specialized set of knowledge and it doesn't necessarily overlap with mine. And especially for speech pathologists, they need to know that even if you're in a medical setting and there are doctors all around you, most doctors should not do, cannot explain voice you know, or understand the complex workings of the larynx, for instance, better than me as a, mm-hmm. as a skilled speech pathologist now. But that's in our wheelhouse. You know, we, we can't just, yeah, we, we can't uh, just assume that they know our field as well as we do from the, even from the anatomy and physiology perspective. Yeah. Yeah. They've got way too much else on their plates. True story. All right. This was exceptional. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lee. It was a lot of fun and I love this topic. Um, so thanks for, thanks for loving it with me today. Do you know what you're doing next summer? I do. I'm presenting awesome medical-focused SLP CEUs on an Alaskan cruise with SpeechTherapyPD.com. From July 10th to the 17th of 2020, we're offering 12 hours of CEUs during a seven-day cruise through the Alaskan and Canadian coast. Check out speechtherapypd.com slash cruise to learn more and sign up. I hope to see you there. In the time since I've recorded this episode with Leia, the concept of metatherapy has been knocking around in my skull, and I've had the chance to try my hand at it. Albeit fragile attempts, (laughs) but I can see the emergence of my patients understanding that my role is akin to that of a navigator, and they're the captain of the ship. I can tell them the routes to take, but they ultimately make the choice to steer the ship in a particular direction. It's changing the dynamics of my interactions with my patients, and I believe it's improving the patient's outcomes and speed with which they achieve their desired outcomes. I still have a lot more work to do in this area, but I feel like the, like, I like the initial stages. Like, I feel like I'm getting somewhere. And a huge thanks to Leia for joining me on the podcast to talk about metatherapy and share this concept with all of us. Um, Check out the show notes on speechuncensored.com for more resources. Next week, we have Julia Kuhn on the podcast to discuss the glories and tragedies of being a travel medical SLP. This is one of Julia's passions, and it is evident in our chat. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. Um, The offer still stands to be my favorite person in the world if you leave a thoughtful written review on iTunes. This week, I'd like to say hello and thank you to the listeners in Aurora, Ohio, Aurora, Nebraska, 
Aurora, Illinois, and Aurora, Colorado. <laughs> I learned that there are actually nine U.S. states with cities named Aurora. And if you say that a bunch of times, it starts to sound strange in your head. Um, I've collected four so far, so come on. I need the rest of you guys living in cities named Aurora to pop on and listen. <laughs> By now, I think you know the drill. So I want you to get out there and nourish and flourish and be awesome, everybody. Thanks for listening, and I'll check in with you next week. <laughs>